Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is David Gibbs, the CEO of Yum Brands. That's Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, KFC, and the Habit Burger Grill. And yes, it's also my former company. David is doing some incredible things to continue to drive growth at Yum Brands. And as you're about to hear, he has a unique mentality that helps him do it. You see, David stepped into the role as CEO back in January of 2020 and was immediately faced with the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. But throughout his career, when David has found himself in challenging situations, he looks for the opportunities, for the upside, for what's positive. And if you've got that ability to reframe a situation, well, you've got the key to unlocking growth for your business, for your team members, and for yourself too. When you listen to David, you can't help but learn that you can inspire others and drive big growth when you flip the script in a tough situation. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, David Gibbs. David, you started your career at PepsiCo, which spun off Pizza Taco Bell, and KFC into what is now called Yum Brands. And you've been at PepsiCo and, and Yum Brands for well over 30 years. Everyone's changing jobs like the wind. I mean, why have you stayed in one company for so long? You know, that's the beauty of a company like ours and the legacy from PepsiCo. I've always felt challenged. I felt like I've changed jobs and changed companies even though I've stayed within the same ecosystem. So I've had the chance to work on the Taco Bell business, the KFC business, the Pizza Hut business. I've had a chance to work in different functions. You know, I think a critical part of being a world-class company like Yum is continually challenging your talent and giving them opportunities to grow so they never go anywhere else. And I'm a great example of that. So it's not that the fact that nobody else wanted to hire you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, hopefully that's not it. It really is just a joy of the, what we do. You know how much fun it is to work in our business. We work in the greatest business in the world. We're working with people on the front line, serving people food that brings joy to their life. We're creating career opportunities for people. It doesn't get any better than this. Why would I go anywhere else? <laughs> you know, you, you came up in finance and real estate positions when you knew... Young Brands and PepsiCo both were companies that the marketing people usually got the big jobs, got to run the divisions. Did knowing that impact you in terms of how you approached your career moves and how did it affect your psyche? It definitely did. You know, you're surrounded by all of these marketing geniuses and you know you're never going to be one of them, but that seems to be the key to success. But the other key to success at companies like ours is to be a growth driver. And I decided early on that I would make my brand, the David Gibbs brand, all about driving growth. I was going to be the CFO or the finance guy that figured out how to invest money to make even more money. And I, you know, I think a lot of times people don't think about their own brand within their company. Everybody has a brand that is associated with them. Uh, and that's a lot of the advice I give to people that are um, starting out their careers. Think about who you want to be and then go be that person. So that's really interesting. You looked at yourself as a brand and you were going to be Mr. Growth. How did you make sure that people in the organization really saw you that way? Because, you know, you might see yourself that way, but you've got to get the attention of others as well. 
Well, I was fortunate that I started out in a part of the business that is wired for growth, and that's the development function. PepsiCo hired me, but they put me into Taco Bell to go find new locations for Taco Bells. So it was a growth driver of the business. The more stores we built, the more money we built. So I developed the commercial skills, and I had the setting for me to become known as somebody who could get a lot of real estate deals done and get a lot of new stores open. And then I kept that kind of mindset when I went into the finance function, which is a little bit more challenging and a totally different nature. And there I looked for ways to invest money to grow, not ways to cut money to save. And then when I got in a position where I could influence others, I would come up with some pithy ways to describe what we wanted to be, like find a way to say yes. You know, the finance department as some people I've heard call it, can often be the sales prevention department. <laughs> we don't want to be the sales prevention department. We want to be the find a way to say yes department. That's great. You know, and, and you were the Yum Brand CFO during the China spinoff where China became a licensee of Yum Brands. But if I recall, and I was around back then, you were hesitant to take that job. Why was that? Like you and everybody else, I had ambitions to be a big general manager. And you always, there's always a little bit of fear about becoming pigeonholed in a functional role, particularly when you take the top role in that function, you sort of limit your options. But, you know, that's sort of a closed, that's a fixed mindset. And I realized quickly that the experience that I would get in a job like that would only help me and open. And if I looked at it the right way and did the job the way I wanted to do it, which was be the growth driver, that it would open up other opportunities for me. And of course, that's how it played out. Looking back, you know, what, what did you see as the biggest business challenge you had on your journey to become a CEO? Well, I think it was in a company like ours where marketing talent and sales talent, you know, rises to the top. It was getting to reframe how people looked at me and to see me as a big leader. The other challenge about it that I had was, look, we're a people business. We're a culture business. We're all about the soft skills at Yum. You created that when you named it a recognition culture. And to be in a job like mine, you've got to be a culture leader. You can't just be a culture follower. You've got to demonstrate that the culture is ingrained in you. And I figured out that what I'm passionate about is people development, hiring the best people, developing them, retaining them, and growing them. And that's a big part of our culture. You instilled that from the start. And I tried to, while I was building a name for myself as a growth leader, I tried to also build a reputation as somebody that would surround themselves with the best talent in the industry and that could bring the team to bear. And that's what you really need in the top jobs in every company. It takes people a lot of time to figure that out. But if you can surround yourself with a whole bunch of people that are better than you, you're assured of success. Well, you certainly have made that a huge priority. And when you look back on your career, you got handed some tasks that I'm sure were not that easy. What was the biggest business challenge or project that you're working on that was the toughest for you to, to get done? Well, look, different parts of our business are wired differently and some are set up better than others for long-term success based on the history of the brand. You know, we've had parts of the business like the Pizza at US business, which was a dine-in business migrating to a delivery business. During that migration, it was a tough business to be running because you were working out of these dine-in stores into the delivery assets. You said to me at the time, take that job because that's a really hard job and you'll learn more in that than anything else you do. That was a hard job. But I did learn a lot in it. And I do think um, you know, we got the brand back on the right track. And today, you know, that pizza business is doing so much better as we've embraced off-premise and delivery and technology. But we had some tough calls. You know, when you're taking the franchise system with you 
And we're all used to doing things a certain way. Changing people's mindsets and doing it collaboratively is the hardest challenge that we have in our business. But that's what we're great at at Yum. We're world-class at working with our franchise partners and in a constant evolution of our businesses. We're constantly reinventing our businesses. No business is static. And that's a skill you need to develop. So I was lucky enough to have that challenge. Now, if you could go back 30 years, David, and start over, what's something that you do differently? I think the only thing I would do differently is I would enjoy the journey more and be less worried about the destination. You know, if you think about it, we all start off and we have these lofty ambitions. And if we're not reaching every single milestone and goal in record time, you know, we find ourselves getting frustrated. And that certainly was me. But now that I look back on it, every job I've had, every role, every team that I've worked with, I've enjoyed. The whole journey has been really joyful the whole time. And I was probably a little bit too wrapped up in the destination and not enjoying every single moment of the journey. You know, how have you managed the transitions that you've had so successfully whenever you've joined a new team and stepped into a new role? Because you had a lot of them, as you just described earlier. I, I had a benefit early in my career in that I worked at what we call a shared service. A lot of companies have this where you're working in a function that is being shared across a whole bunch of different people. So you have a whole bunch of different bosses and having to please a whole bunch of different bosses. You quickly learn, you know, to have empathy, to look at things through the lens of other people, what little tricks you can do to help bring them over to your side to become partners. Because when you're a shared service, people don't have to take your call. You need to work with them and you need to win them over. I was blessed to have that opportunity to work in the real estate function, which was a shared service between Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut. And I had to develop that skill of partnering with people at other businesses. And I look for that now when I hire people. I look for people that have been consultants in their background because consultants often aren't welcomed in um, and they have to figure out a way to get their foot in the door and become a partner. What's the best way to get your foot in the door and become that partner? I mean, tell us a story of when you actually did that. Well, I think people want to know that you're authentic and genuine. When I was a real estate manager, one of the things that I think I use very effectively is most real estate managers would go out and visit a potential site and go into sell mode with the people at the brand and the operators to say, you need to prove this site. I've got this great site. You've got to approve it so I can get credit for it on my bonus and we can get another store open. But I, when I would do site rides with the operators, I would take them to some sites that I liked and some sites that I didn't like and explain to them why I didn't like it to build credibility with them that everything I was doing was not just selling, that sometimes when I was selling, it was because I believed in it. And then when I was taking them to some other sites that I didn't believe in, they could understand my logic for why I would reject things. Funny enough, I would end up in situations where I would take them to a site I didn't like, and then they would start to try to convince me that maybe we should do it. And that's when you know you've broken through. And now you're working on equal terms, really looking at the facts. Nobody's got their own agenda. You're working together for the greater good. You know, you've always had the ability, David, to drive important changes, even when you work for some bosses who had a tendency to avoid conflict that it takes to really get things done. How did you navigate those situations? How do you manage up successfully? Look, I've always been a big believer, as cliche as it sounds, is my job is to make my boss look great. And if you just approach everything you do uh, with that mentality, it's amazing how things fall into a place. So when I worked for people that maybe were conflict avoiders, 
My job was to take on the conflicts that they didn't want to take on, help them look good, and just do it behind the scenes. My job was to help coach them on conflicts that they needed to take on that I wasn't able to handle, but it was important for them in their job. And it's funny to me how my attitude has always been, whoever I work for, whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it, however high you want me to jump, I'm all in. I've heard you say that people shouldn't necessarily want to only work for great bosses because you can learn even more sometimes from the bad ones. Can you give me a, for instance, without mentioning any names, obviously, where this has popped up in your career in a big way? First of all, I've been fortunate that I have worked for some great leaders. Uh, my wife, Sharon, who you know, always joked that every time I came home and I had a new boss, I would tell her, I can't believe how much I'm learning from this new guy. This is so fantastic. So for the most part, I've learned lots of great lessons about leadership. And I think you're very fortunate when you work for a company with the kind of leaders we've had to just learn by observation. But I've certainly seen other people uh, handle things that backfired on them and use that as opportunities to learn from. A best example I can give you, which uh, really changed how I led in a big way, is at one point in my career, I was working for a leader who prevented me from getting a new job opportunity. He didn't know that I knew this, but I found out through back channels that he said I wasn't available for a bigger role because he didn't want to let me leave his team. I eventually overcame that. I confronted him on it and I got the job. But the feeling I had of being held back because somebody else was selfish and wanted me on their team and wouldn't give me up, I've kept that in mind every time we make people decisions in this company. When we have leaders that are being put up for jobs and I hear somebody say, well, they'd be great in that job and it's a bigger job, but I can't really afford to let them go. I just go back to that time, um, what that felt like to me. And we don't want to be a company like that. We want to be a company that prioritizes getting people into the best opportunities for them to grow and where they can have the biggest impact on the business. Well, one of the reasons why I know you kept getting more and more responsibility is because you do have this passion for developing people, which you talked about a little bit earlier. Where'd that personal passion really come from? I think it probably came from being a really big uh, sports participant. I played basketball and tennis in college and in high school, and I always loved competing. And the fact that you can get so much better in sports with some coaching and the right kind of experiences, you can really build up skills that you didn't have. When I was a little kid, I couldn't make a left-handed layup to save my life. And I just decided one summer, by the end of this summer, I'm going to be really good at left-handed layups. And I went to work on making left-handed layups. And I, I got to the point where I was a little bit more comfortable coming in from the left side for a layup than I was on the right side. So I, I learned early on that you can really improve your skill set. And actually so much so that you can ask any of my friends from early in my life, I always wanted to be a coach. I thought, wow, this is so great. You can teach people things and you can see improvement. That's so rewarding to help them and, and to see the impact you can have. I planned on quitting PepsiCo, you know, when I was 40 years old to go become a high school basketball coach. That was my real plan in life uh, because I enjoyed it so much. Obviously, that's another one of those things that I failed on and didn't follow through on. But what I discovered is that the joy that I would have from coaching people in basketball, I can get the same joy working in a company like ours through hiring people and helping to develop them. That's great. And, and here you are now. You're the CEO of Young Brands. What is it about this role that might have caught you by surprise? Well, after being with the company for 33 years, getting to observe great leaders like yourself, you would think I was perfectly prepared for whatever would come with this role. 
But I was not prepared for a pandemic. <laughs> and in fact, the pandemic, you know, I started in January of 2020 because we have a big business in China. I was already aware of what was going on in China day one in the job. No, we didn't know how severe it would get. But that, that's one thing that caught me by surprise. And then there's a whole bunch of follow-on things from that. You know, a lot of the social unrest that occurred over the last few years uh, related to inequality, I didn't realize as the CEO of, of this company that I would be dealing with so many issues like that. I embrace that opportunity. I think Yum can be an agent for change and that we can do so much good in the world in terms of equality. But I could never have pictured what the last two and a half years would look like. <laughs> I do remember saying to my wife when I started in the job, I said, look, everything's set up well. The company's doing well. You know, the future's really bright. The one thing I know is it's not going to play out the way it looks right now at my first day on the job. <laughs> it never does play out. There's always that surprise around the corner. You know, you talked about the importance of building culture. And, and you have over 2,000 franchisees. They have their own businesses. Uh, you know, obviously, they pay you royalties for the, the ability to participate with the brands. But you can't control how they run their companies. How do you build culture worldwide when you don't have that control? Well, certainly, that's the biggest challenge in our businesses. Our business is expressed through 2,000 different entities with their own leaders and their own way of approaching business challenges. And I think under your leadership, we created a framework for what, what our values are at Yum, you know, a recognition culture. And it's amazing how that's come alive around the world and how we keep building on it and building on it layer by layer by layer. So while we don't have direct control, we create an environment and an ecosystem that really does, you know, create more similarities and how our business represents itself in our communities than differences. But a lot of it does get back to picking the right partners. It's such a simple truth in our business, but the reality is if you have a bad franchise partner, you're never going to be able to build your brand the way you want. And if you have a great franchise partner, it's really easy to build it and grow the way we've been growing. So I, I think we're pretty rigorous now about the partners that we choose and making sure that we have the right ones. And when we make those changes in some markets and get the right partner in, you know, things take off like clockwork. Let's face it, your life is just too important to delegate to someone else. That's why I'm so passionate about self-coaching. If you're new to this concept, I put together a free self-coaching guide that will walk you through the principles of how to become a great self-coach to really find fulfillment in your life and career. You can get it at takechargeofyou.com slash guide. This free guide will give you a simple plan you can follow to kickstart your self-coaching journey. It's the perfect time to invest your time into self-coaching as we near the end of the year and think about what's to come in 2023. This guide will help you become the very best you you can be. Get it at takechargeofyou.com slash guide. You give your people a lot of autonomy and they, they really appreciate that. But what caution can you give leaders on how to give that autonomy out. You know, how do you know when to take the leash off and let people go? What have you learned about that aspect of leadership? This company and traveling around the world has taught me the power of empowering people. Another saying that I've always remembered from your days of leadership is, when you take the joy of the decision away from somebody, you take the joy of the job away from them. 
So the power of giving people control in the field is immense. The reason Yum has been so successful in emerging markets, for example, is because those are markets where you really have to customize your business a little bit to the local taste. Obviously, if you're in India, you're not serving beef. If you're in your other parts of the world, you know, there are certain delicacies that you want to serve and incorporate in your menu. All of those decisions can't be made from the center. So I've learned when in doubt, hire great people and rely on them in the field rather than trying to control things from the center, even though it goes against a lot of uh, my tendencies to want to really manage stuff tightly and ensure success. And it's worked for us. And it's really a hallmark of our business. You know, you've talked about your tendencies that, you know, this could be difficult for you. That could be difficult. That requires a lot of self-awareness. How do you stay self-aware? I think self-awareness is one of the most underrated skills in leadership that there is. And we all know when you're dealing with somebody who's not self-aware, it's really hard for them to be successful. Uh, I, first of all, I have a wife who keeps me very self-aware and has uh, no problem <laughs> giving me feedback and a family uh, that feels the same way, which I love. But I think I've tried to create an environment where people can give me feedback and know they're not going to get their head chopped off. They may get into a debate about something, but they know I appreciate it. You, know, you want to surround yourself with truth tellers. You want to, and you want to be a role model for that truth telling. You know, so many times you can get into a meeting and there's something that's not right and everybody knows it and nobody voices it. If I voice it and you know, I'm willing to take on the elephant in the room, I hope my team sees that they can take on the elephant in the room with me and give me that feedback. You know, you led what is called the Capital Light move for Yum Brands. Give people a, just a quick overview on what Capital Light means as it relates to Yum. And then what was the challenge of taking the organization with you? It's very easy to build a retail business by spending your own capital, building all the stores, owning all the stores, and having all the employees work for you. It's a, a many degrees more complex to operate through franchisees where all the stores are built by them and run by them. In 2016, we made a move by separating off all of the company-owned stores we had in China into a separate franchise entity and selling off some other stores that we owned. We made a move to Asset Light. So the benefits of that are we no longer have to deploy capital to build stores, and we have the benefits of franchising, which is you have local ownership of your stores, people that are in the communities that should know better how to bring your business alive in those different countries around the world. It you know, wasn't an easy move. There was lots of dissenters in the company. We even had some people leave the company because they disagreed with it so much. But at the end of the day, we got all the benefits that we thought we would get out of it. Less capital deployed, franchise partners that were more empowered to grow the business. And then we even got some benefits that we never anticipated, or at least that weren't obvious. Back when we did this uh, asset light move, we were building about 1,200 net new stores a year a lot of them built with our company capital. You would think if we backed off of building stores with company capital, that maybe the amount of stores that we built would go down. But the opposite happened because we empowered our franchisees and we gave them the ability to go build stores in their markets and help support that because we rallied all of our internal resources against it. And now we're building over 3,000 net new stores a year. So we had a, a massive benefit from this. And it's all being, you know, almost all being done with franchisee capital, which is great because they're getting great returns. So it's a win-win for everybody. Three, you're doing 3,000 stores a year, net new stores a year. You know, how do you do that? I mean, how do you lead that effort? Again, I think this is one where we had to really shift the organization's mindset, shifting everybody 
to becoming asset light was a challenge because people took pride in we own some of the stores and they were running them directly. So we had to shift their mindset before we could get the result we wanted. Well, the same thing goes with development. If, I, if you had told anybody in this company five years ago, we're going to build 3,000 net new stores while we were going towards an asset light model, they would have said we're absolutely insane. So we had to get over that barrier, the mental barrier, and we made it the focus of every conversation. And you know, the funny thing is, it was the opportunity was just sitting there because franchisees are getting good returns from building these stores. So they were very receptive to working with us to accelerating growth. It was really more just about getting everybody's mindset around the opportunity and going after it. And lo and behold, the results have exceeded our expectations. And I've heard you, David, talk about the importance of being both David and Goliath in business. You know, what do you mean by that? We are the world's largest restaurant company. We've got 54,000 restaurants and counting, and we're growing faster, you know, building more restaurants every year than any other company. So obviously, we're a Goliath. But we have to think small. We have to break that in massive company up into small pieces and act as if every store matters and every employee matters and every new location gets our full attention. And the asset light model allows us to do that because we don't really have that many employees that work directly for the corporation. So we can influence the employees that work for the corporation and then get that to trickle down throughout the entire system. But every leader I've talked to talks about having that challenger mindset, having that mentality of just cutting through bureaucracy in everything you do. Every day I wake up and I, my number one driver is just getting rid of complacency and bureaucracy in our business and acting like a much smaller business. So you go into market, you feel like they're complacent. What do you do? The easiest way to get a better result that I've found is to change out leaders when you don't have the right leader in place. But there is another aspect to this, which is, have we really been clear with the organization about what we're trying to do? So you've heard me talk about this a little bit. We want to have a winning mindset. We want to be thinking about market share, growing our market share every year, just growing our sales year over year. Of course, we have to do that. But are we growing our sales and growing share at the same time? So I think there's an element of this, of just establishing what we define as success in our company. And so we've defined that in a bold way. You know, it's about beating year ago sales, but it's also about beating the competition and growing our share. And I think that coupled with the right leaders makes it very clear what our ambitions are. David, you're a humble guy, but you also are what I would say supremely confident in your, your ability. Has there ever been a time where you experienced self-doubt? And most people do. And how'd you overcome it? Can you tell us that story? Well, look, I think we all experience self-doubt, if you're honest about it. There's lots of directions you can pick. The job of a leader is to pick one and then confidently move forward. The best story I can think about is when I had self-doubt, but I put it aside and march forward is, you know, the early days of the pandemic when I was getting on, you know, video chats with thousands of employees and franchisees and everybody was looking to Yum and to me for answers about how are we going to get through this. And I, I realized early on that was going to be a great opportunity to establish my brand of leadership and also build tighter bonds with our employees and with our franchisees. So I put the self-doubt aside. I didn't know what's <laughs> going to happen with the pandemic. Nobody possibly could. And I realized my job was to give a little confidence to people that whatever's thrown our way, we'll figure out how to get through it. 
And our number one priority is take care of our employees and our customers and our franchise partners, and that we're going to live up to that. We then followed that up with some very specific actions that I think inspired even more confidence. We told our franchisees, look, you guys are in trouble right now. Don't pay us royalties. We'll give you a grace period on royalties. It was a bold thing to do because we needed the money to keep the company running. But we knew that they didn't have it. And we had an opportunity to build even uh, stronger bonds with them by being the first one to go to them and say, look, you know, your survival is our number one priority. That's great. You know, I want to shift gears for a minute and take you back. What's a story from your childhood that shaped the kind of leader you are today? The first one that pops to mind, I'm sure there's lots of them, is I was playing a tennis match. <laughs> I was on the tennis team in high school, and I, was, I lost the first set badly. I was down in the second set. I think it was like 5-2. So the other guy was serving. I was dead to rights in this tennis match. And he, the guy was a friend of mine on the other team, and I came back and won that match in a three-set, like, four-hour, just drained me. And I never thought I could, but I wouldn't give up. And, you know, for those people that know me, I can be pretty stubborn and pretty persistent. And I think about that match a lot. Like, you know, no matter how far down you are or how difficult something seems, you can come back. You know, I can picture where I was on that court. I can picture the weather. I, everything about it is still fresh in my mind and still a motivator, and I apply it to other situations. Now, you played tennis, which was an individual sport, and you played basketball, which is obviously a, a team sport, and you really are a big proponent of, you know, developing teams and growing teams. And one of the things that I observed about you is that you always try to win over the toughest person on the team or the most challenging franchisee. I mean, most people would stay away from those people like you can't believe. Okay, Owen, why do you do this? <laughs> That's funny. That reminds me of another story from when I was just out of college. I My first job out of college was working on the uh, sales and trading desk at Solomon Brothers in New York City. And as you know, there's a lot of gruff people in that environment. I'm this new kid out of college. And I had some job where I had to go around and check in with the different traders every morning on a couple of things and get some information that I would share with other people. And I was doing the job for a while, and I started to form a good relationship with one of the traders. And I was talking to a more experienced associate, and I said, oh, you know, it's going pretty well. You know, John really likes me. He was really nice to me. And the guy said to me, John likes everybody. You know, if you can get along with Joe... And you can get Joe to smile once. Now you've done something. And it's true. Every time I would approach Joe's desk, I was like in a panic because I thought he was going to hit me. And I would, <laughs> you know, quickly get in there, ask him a quick question and get out of there. So then I turned it around and I said, I'm going to form a good relationship with this guy. And I actually did. And I sort of carried that lesson with me, too, is like, it's easy to get along with the easy people. The real challenge is try to figure out how you can tackle the more difficult people and those relationships often can be the most rewarding and the most important to you. You know, a lot of people are scared to give and receive feedback. You know, they avoid both like the plague. But, but it sounds like this really isn't that much of a struggle for you. What process can others follow that can help them gain confidence in how to give feedback to others? I think the number one obstacle for giving effective feedback is our own innate desire to be liked. If I give somebody feedback that I know is going to be tough for them to receive, 
They're going to maybe feel a little bit less positively about me. It's hard to do that. People are naturally wired to be approval seekers. But I flipped that around in my mind to think the most valuable thing you can do to somebody is give them really actionable feedback. And I've had those experiences over my career where I've given people really tough feedback and then they've come back to me, you know, sometimes years later and said, you know, you told me that and that's made a difference in my life and I appreciate that. At the time, they're not going to appreciate it. At the time, they may be angry with you and it takes some self-confidence and the commitment to really wanting to help others to be able to do that. One of the other things that you talk about is the importance, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier about being your authentic self. When did it dawn on you, the importance of being your authentic self? Did you learn that yourself in some way? And then two-part question, how do you promote that across the organization? I grew up in New York where everybody's their authentic self. <laughs> uh, so they tell you how they feel. Uh, so maybe it's a little bit easier for me, but I'll give you a good example of where I thought that was really valuable and where I promoted it for the organization. Go back to those early company-wide calls that we had about COVID. I could sense how tense everybody was, how worried they were, how could they even trust that the company was gonna take care of them. Uh, so on one of the first calls, I realized I had to make things more lighthearted and be a little vulnerable. So I just casually said, you know, what are we gonna do about cutting our hair? We, we can't go get our hair cut anymore because we can't be around people. Are we all going to have hair down to our knees? It became a, a little joke in the company that uh, everybody <laughs> would ask me about cutting my hair. So then I went out and I bought scissors and a clipper and I started cutting my own hair and reporting on it back to the rest of the organization. <laughs> and, and there's other examples like that where when we have those calls, I try to keep them very, you know, authentic, real, you know, and talk about things that are every day so that people recognize we're being transparent. And I think it's brought the company closer together and has set that role model of, hey, it's okay to talk about your personal life and share things with everybody. So now when we get on those calls, the other leaders in Yum!, do the same thing. They talk about what they did since the last call. You know, we just had one of these calls and Tracy Skeens, our great chief operating officer, talked about dropping her kids off at college and how that felt. And I, I think that can be very powerful for an organization to make a big, huge company in 150 plus countries feel small because you know intimate details about your senior leaders. You know, I've heard you tell others that you spend probably 50% of your time learning new things. Why is that? And tell us a story about the most recent thing that you've learned. The ability to be in constant learner mode is something you taught me early on. It, I remember the first few times you'd use this phrase, avid learner. I was like, what's he talking about with this avid learner thing? And then I started really un, you know, getting a full appreciation for it. And the fact that you, know, you do these podcasts is a great example of an avid learner. You get more out of this than anybody listening to it. You love hearing stories and learning from others. And that's great. And what I found is um, having leaders around the company that are wired the same way is invaluable. You know, almost every leader of any big company that I've met is intellectually curious. And I'm no different. So... Uh, I mean, I, as far as examples of, you know, how I uh, satisfy my intellectual curiosity, you know, obviously I'm a big reader. I'm a constant Googler of information. There's nothing that, you know, the invention of the internet that you can carry in your palm was a game changer for me. I remember um, sitting at a table with a bunch of people at a dinner when I got my first BlackBerry and uh, we were talking about 
how many stitches there was on a baseball. This is like 20 years ago. And I quickly on the BlackBerry looked up on the, you know, the 1G internet, how many stitches there was on a baseball. I guess there's, I think there's 108. And I remember thinking, wow, this is going to change my life. I can get any answer I want in the palm of my hands. Um, and I, funny enough, I think I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of leaders at Yum that are constantly looking up things like how many stitches there are in baseball, constantly intellectually curious about how things are done and how we could learn from them. What's the thing that you've learned most recently that's kind of surprised you? I just went to um, India on a business trip. It's the first time outside the United States during the pandemic. And a lot of people are now are talking about what does the future of work look like? How are we going to work from the house? Are we going to work from the office? Is it hybrid? What, what's the solution? Our Indian team, on their own, remade their entire office in a way that it promotes, you know, collaboration, got rid of everybody's dedicated offices for the most part, redid the office with little cues that I, I recently learned about are important in a work environment, like having the right kind of background music at the right level. I mean, all these little subtle things that I had never even thought about, they incorporated into this work environment, and it's a smashing success. So I think, you know, every day I learn something fascinating, oftentimes just, you know, by just uh, visiting with people in our business because there's so much going on around the world to learn from. Our biggest challenge is how do we share that with other parts of the world? And you know that well from your time at Yum because you can be so big sometimes people are reinventing the same thing in three different parts of the world. We'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with David Gibbs in just a moment. But you know, David has defined his career as someone who drives growth. And growth is something we all want for our organizations, for our teams, and for ourselves. And I loved what Will Ahmed, the CEO of Whoop, the wearable health device, had to say about this concept. Well, it's funny. We define the whole business through growth and retention, which we've nicknamed Growtain for grow and retain. You know, those are the two levers on our business. And I would say that you can't have one without the other. And for us, ensuring that people are really enjoying the product for months and years, and hopefully for the rest of their lives, is core to our value proposition. Listen to my entire conversation with Will, episode 64, here at How Leaders Lead. You know, I love to get into how leaders make really tough decisions. And and when Russia invaded Ukraine, you had some big decisions to make there. Take us through the actions you took and why, and how did you think it through? I think the first thing you realize is the world is looking, we're going to be judged on how we deal with this, and what's the way that Yum, with our values, we would handle it. And that became quickly apparent that you know, we can't continue to trade in Russia we can't continue to even be seen as you know, profiting from doing business in Russia. So the first thing we did is we stopped all development of new locations, and we committed all of the profit that we make to Russia to be diverted towards humanitarian causes. It's one thing to you know, say you're going to exit Russia, but that's going to take some time. We wanted to do something tangible, immediate, that people could see how serious we were about our values and how we stood for them in a situation like that. We're always going to do the right thing in those situations. We've advanced discussions to exit the country. Pizza Hut, we've sold that brand to a local partner who's going to rebrand those stores. 
We're in the process of doing the same thing with KFC. There can, you know, there's no gray area when it comes to doing what's right. These are tough decisions, but they're actually easy to make if you have a set of values that you operate by. What was the toughest thing about making that decision, David? The people on the ground that worked in our Russian business. You know, that, that was also a priority. They didn't do anything wrong. We were concerned about making sure that we took care of them and that they didn't have any negative consequences from that. So we shut all of our company stores, for example, right away. That was another aspect of what we did in, uh, in addition to committing the profits to humanitarian causes. But we also continued to pay the employees of those company stores. We cared about the people in the stores. We cared about the people that worked in our office there. We've tried to do everything we can to navigate what well, is clearly a very complicated, difficult situation. So far, I think we've done the right things. You know, Dave, one of the things that I wish I would have done a better job in was technology when I was running Yum Brands. And you now describe Yum as a tech company. That seems like a big stretch, certainly from where we were when I was there. But, you know, what have you done to lead that revolution? Well, that was, you know, if, if you look back at my list of the five things I wanted to get done back in January 2020 for the next chapter of Growth for Yum, you know, very high on that five was getting our tech game in order. We're the world's largest restaurant company, but we didn't have the best technology in our restaurants. We weren't a leader in tech. We've made that transition now. We had been working on it prior to that, but we've really capitalized on that over the last couple of years. We've more than doubled the sales that come through digital channels. And that was simply just assembling the right people. We've got a world-class team of people that lead tech for Yum now. We actually just had a, our Global Leadership Summit, which you were um, kind enough to come attend and help us celebrate our 25th anniversary. At that summit, the function with the most leaders represented was technology. The last time we had that summit, it was the one with the least. So our most senior leaders now over-index on technology leaders and we've done some acquisitions of other companies. It's a comprehensive strategy to win in the category. Well, as they say in Australia, good on you, because it's definitely making the company better. And you know, it was interesting, David, that you did have me come back and speak to everybody as the co-founder of Yum Brands at this 25th anniversary. And, and, you know, I interview a lot of different people, different CEOs, but when you become CEO, most CEOs basically say, hey, forget the last guys, you know, I don't want to see them again. This is my show now. What made you say, hey, it's okay to have somebody else come in that used to lead the company? You know, most people don't do that. There's a number of reasons why I had you come. Number one, it was the 25th anniversary, and I thought nobody could do a better job of helping us celebrate that than you. You're also obviously an iconic figure in our brand, and I think people enjoy seeing you and hearing your stories of what Yum was like 25 years ago. I want to see leaders that have low ego and are collaborative, that don't have to invent everything, that are happy to share the spotlight, want to build on the successes of their predecessors, not tear down what they did and start over as if they had all the answers and the last guy didn't. I thought role modeling that with you and Greg Creed, you know, who was in between us, you know, we do that in every way, shape or form. I want to celebrate you guys and I want everybody to see I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm not starting fresh. We're just authoring another chapter, but we have a lot that we owe you. And when leaders in this company take over a new part of the business, I don't want them to throw away all the ideas that the last guy or gal had. I want them to build on them. You know, David, it's been so much fun, and I want to have a little bit more with what I call my lightning round of Q&A. So are you ready for this? Ready. Here we go. What's one word others would use to describe you? Competitive. What's one word that you think best describes you? Curious. 
What's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, complacency. If I even see it creeping into myself or anybody else, I can't stand it. What's something about South Africa that you'd, you'd know only if you were a yum CEO? <laughs> well, certainly that we have way more KFCs than McDonald's has stores on the ground there. <laughs> how about same question for China? It's hard to appreciate how dominant our business is there relative to any other retailer in the world. Uh, we are the defining Western retailer in that country. How about France? The fact that the country that maybe has a reputation for being the most highest quality taste buds in the world absolutely loves our products. Our KFC fried chicken is such a huge hit there. I've always found it fascinating how they flock to our business. And it just goes to show you, if we serve KFC fried chicken on white china in a fine tablecloth restaurant, it would be a hit. It's a hit no matter what the setting. <laughs> What's something about you that few people would know? I always answer that with, I'm a card counter. I was a card counter in playing blackjack when I was in college. <laughs> so I used to go to Atlantic City and count cards. And I actually uh, got thrown out of a casino in uh, Monaco at one point, uh, <laughs> right after college. <laughs> if you turn on the radio in your car, what would we hear? Probably CNBC. When was your last, I can't believe this is happening to me moment? Probably when I found out I was going to become the CEO of Yum!, or when I found out I was going to be the CEO of Yum and we, I was going to be leading it in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just a few more questions. That's the end of the lightning round here. You're a CEO. Your wife, Sharon, is a doctor. What's it like having a partner that's way, way smarter than you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's so obvious to you. It is to everybody else. <laughs> I don't know how you can go through life without having a partner like that where you have somebody that you can talk to and get great advice from that will shoot you straight. She's been everything to me, uh, my rock, and there's no way I'm in this job without having her as my partner. And by the way, my kids are uh, you know, great sources of inspiration and feedback as well. So I've been very lucky with my family. You know, you're, you're passionate about creating a, a level playing field for your team members across YUM. What are you doing to really make that a reality? Well, in the summer of 2020, uh, we committed $100 million to what we called an initiative about unlocking opportunity and fighting inequality. That money is being put to amazingly good use all around the world through our businesses. Examples of that, uh, which some people may be familiar with, is you know we are funding a program at the University of Louisville to create a course that teaches people how to become franchisees with an emphasis on bringing in diverse candidates through that program, we'll provide tuition assistance. And the idea is to create these pathways. You know, it's one thing to provide paychecks, but paychecks can only go so far. We want to create pathways for people so they can make the journey from a team member all the way to a franchisee. But, there, you know, there's so much going on in that area. You know, our involvement in 110, which is creating positions for black leaders in the United States and family-sustaining jobs, and you name it, we've got initiatives across a wide variety of uh, parts of the business. And what's your unfinished business as CEO of Yum Brands? Well, we both know there's always going to be unfinished business. Every morning you wake up and there's some new areas of opportunity. And that's the thing about our business. We've, all of our brands have been around for 60 years because we've continually reinvented them. We've still got a long way to go in terms of a consistent experience in our restaurants, a long way to go in terms of building out our stores. We're one of the few companies in the world that can say we have been around for over 60 years and we have more growth ahead of us than we do behind us. 
we have 54,000 restaurants now. There's no doubt we're going to have well over 100,000 restaurants at some point in the future. So there's always going to be something for the next guy to work on. Uh, I'm confident of that. <laughs> no question. You know, one of the things we had some challenges early on at Yum was really getting Taco Bell to start to take off on an international basis. And, you know, I've seen the recent numbers and it looks like you're really building some momentum on that front. What was it that got Taco Bell over the hump internationally? I think it was actually something that was started when you were leading Yum, and that was reorganizing our business so we had dedicated leadership to Taco Bell internationally. In the past, we would have leaders that would manage a geography, and they would run KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut all in their same geography, and Taco Bell didn't get enough attention. Once we started creating an organization that was solely focused on Taco Bell, you know, the brand started to come alive internationally. But it's always a long journey to start building in uh, countries. We know you have to get to scale and that takes time. But we're, we're at that tipping point now. We're actually building more Taco Bells outside the United States today than we are inside the United States. And that trend is going to continue for a very long time. And, you know, one of the things that I don't think people really understand is just how successful KFC is outside of the United States. What makes KFC so strong outside of the United States and really a lot stronger than it is in the United States? The KFC business in the U.S. has really got some momentum going behind it now. And we're excited about, you know, the opportunity we have in the U.S. We only have 4,000 stores in the U.S. We've got 7,000 Taco Bells, for example. There's no reason why we can't have the same kind of numbers in the U.S. So we still have a very bright future in the U.S., but we went through a period where we had to, you know, really get our game together and now we've got momentum. Internationally, KFC set up with a lot of advantages over a lot of other concepts. Chicken is a preferred protein around the world. It's easy to introduce a chicken concept into a country because people are used to chicken, particularly in emerging markets where they you know, have them in their backyard. And then, of course, the Colonel, I believe, is one of the most recognizable logos in the world. There's some surveys that say the most recognizable. So when you have a combination of an iconic brand and a protein that is favored, we start out with some advantages, but our big advantage, as you know, is the people that we have building that brand around the world and the way that they bring it to life in unique brand building ways. It's a category of one kind of brand. There's nothing else like it. And it has truly been successful anywhere we invest behind it, put the right people behind it, build the right assets, serve the product the way it's supposed to be served. It's a winner every time. As we were having this conversation, David, there were a number of times where you kind of flip the script, turn things around on its ear. A bad boss can really be your best boss. Uh, these ways that you flip the script. I mean, where did you get that kind of approach? You'll appreciate that Scott Berggren and I actually came up with a hand gesture that we would use to flip the script when we were getting backed into a corner in something. <laughs> Maybe it was with Yum on setting our plan or <laughs> it could have been, you know, on a franchise issue, whatever it is. I think it's always helpful to try to look at things from the opposite perspective. A good example of that is when COVID hit. I knew that that was going to be terrible for humanity. And, and obviously, we would all undo it in a second if we could. But I, I just put my mindset in, okay, what good can come out of this? And how do we capitalize on it? Because it's the only thing that we could control. And I think that mindset helped. We built stronger relationships with franchisees, stronger relationships with the employees, that's an example of this mentality of just flip the script on anything. Anything that is presented to you as being bad, I immediately try to figure out, okay, how can this actually be good? So what's one piece of advice, David, you'd give to aspiring leaders? 
uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but enjoy the journey. If you're working towards milestones, you'll never be happy because you'll get to the milestone, you'll be happy for 30 seconds, and then you'll be worried about the next milestone. Enjoy the journey. Speaking of enjoying the journey, we've been on this conversation for about an hour. I've enjoyed every minute of it, Dave, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights. And I also want you to know how proud I am of you as a former CEO of Young Brands, that we have somebody as talented and as special as you are taking the business forward. So thank you very much, buddy. Thank you for having me, David. I loved it. You know, it's always great for me to hear from David Gibbs and to catch up on all the good stuff happening at Yum Branch with him at the helm. You know, David clearly has always had an eye for growth. From his days in finance to his passion for helping employees develop to now as he's making the kind of big decisions that drive 3,000 net new stores in a year. That's amazing. I mean, it's hard to put into words just what a staggering rate of growth that is. That's like opening a store every three hours for a full entire year. But that growth mindset comes from his incredible ability to flip the script. For him, a tough situation is an opportunity to learn. If something doesn't go his way, he asks, hey, what does this make possible instead? Think about the power of that question. Leaders with that kind of mentality are unstoppable. They inspire others and they find success in the most unlikely places. So let's work on developing that mentality this week. Here's a bit of coaching for you. Schedule 30 minutes in your calendar and use that uninterrupted time to consider a challenging situation that you're facing right now. Then try to flip the script on it. Ask yourself, what new opportunities does it give you or someone else on your team? What benefits could there be? What's the upside? Now, we all know you got to be careful not to sweep the bad stuff under the rug. As a leader, it's your job to define reality. Just bear in mind that even in the toughest of realities, there are big opportunities waiting for the leaders who are tenacious enough to flip the script. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders flip the script in tough situations. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Steve Holmes, the former CEO of Wyndham Hotels and the non-executive chairman of both Wyndham Worldwide and Wyndham Destinations, two companies that he spun off that are doing great things. What I learned early on was there are core values in your life. You have to respect people. You have to, I won't go through all the core values, but you have to, you have to have those values and then you apply them to wherever you are. If you're the person that people are looking up to, you have to let people know what you believe in. And when I had a chance to do that as CEO, it was just taking what I had done before and putting it into a much larger scale. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 